You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. We are in the last chapter of the book of James, chapter 5. We're going to be talking about this issue of patience. And what we've been doing is we've been talking about the, the whole point of James writing this book is to get into this issue of what does it look like to be a mature Christian. In the last few weeks, we've talked about the mature Christian living in tension with our culture. We talked about the cosmos, that Greek term meaning the world system, which is just the way of the world when we all go the natural way. That it's a, it's, it's a system uh, that where people live self selfishly, uh, where people kind of look out for themselves and look out for their own. And that's true of any culture. That's something that's broken in human nature is that we tend to prioritize our needs over others. We've talked about how the mature Christian brings God into their decision-making, that they pray and they consult the Word and they rely on input from other people, that we want to live real relationships, real lives. We want people to know what's really going on, and we want input on those things. But that's something that many people do not have. We spend so much time putting up a facade that no one ever really knows what's going on in our lives. And as Christians, we want to stand against that. Last time we talked about how the mature Christian understands the perils of wealth, how money itself is not evil, but it comes with a whole host of distractions and and temptations that can destroy a Christian's walk if they're not careful. And tonight we're going to talk about how the mature Christian has learned to be patient and what patience is in a biblical context. So we get to chapter 5, we were in verses 1 through 6 last week, and we get to verse 7, and he says, Therefore, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now what's interesting about this therefore is if you look at the perils of wealth in verses 1 through 6, you get to 7, and I would argue that what you're seeing in verse 7 is the beginning of the conclusion. I don't think the therefore here is Therefore, because uh, there are perils in wealth, be patient. I think he's going back to the beginning of his argument. He's, He's starting the conclusion, the closing of his letter. Often in New Testament letters, you kind of see at the very end of the letter, the author kind of groups together, you know, the main theme again, and then kind of shotguns a bunch of little points at the end there that they want to squeeze in before they run out of ink. And I think that's what we're seeing here. If I were start picking where the chapters start and end, the final chapter would start right here. And therefore would be, be patient would be, therefore because of all these things we've talked about, be patient until the Lord is coming. That restatement of the opening point, how did he begin the book? Consider it all joy, brothers, when you encounter various trials. This was a group of people that were suffering because of their faith. And he's uh, he's trying to show them what maturity looks like. But especially maturity in the midst of unjust, unfair, harsh, and terrible treatment. Because they believe in Jesus Christ. There were tension in their families. These were Jewish Christians Culturally, 
from a Jewish background who had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah and the teachings of Jesus were tearing families and synagogues and communities apart because they were in disagreement about who Jesus was. The thing I want to draw your attention to, though, is what he doesn't say. What he says is, be patient and remember the Lord is returning. He doesn't say, it's going to get better. He doesn't say that the world will come to accept you. And this tension is just for a time. He says, it's going to get better, but not until Jesus comes back and ends the world. This is a part of the fundamental problem of the human condition. And this is part of one of the major points of tension that a Bible-believing Christian would have with the world system, the way that everybody thinks on their own. The Bible teaches us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We're created in the image of God, and we've got all these capabilities of love and compassion and mercy and kindness and patience, all these things that we can do that are amazing and wonderful and incredible reflections of who God is, but because of our collective rebellion against God, we are broken, we are fallen, we are selfish, we are impatient, we are hostile, we are greedy, that we're capable of a lot of good, but we're capable of a lot of evil as well, and that the system, the world that we live in, is in the hands of God's enemy. That there is more encouragement to live selfishly and more direction, like a current of a river pulling you in that direction. That current is in the way that the world works, but it's also in your heart. Now, the world wants to say things like, well, man is basically good, and they believe that if we just hold on and technology and philosophy and education, if we just keep building on those things, that we'll be moving toward a utopia where the, there'll be a space federation where we all get along and travel the cosmos together, sleeping with green women. Like... <laughs> That's, that's the idea of, that's humanism. And that was an idea, an ideology that was very popular in the 60s and 70s, and you see that in Star Trek. Just that idea that, you know, one day there'll be no money, there'll be no poverty, there'll be no disease, there'll be no war, there'll be exploration and learning and growing. And what God says is, is that stuff is great, and I have all of that planned for you in heaven, but it is not going to happen in your current condition. Because you're messed up, you're broken, and the world itself is broken. And so things are not going to get better in this life. They're not going to get better on this planet. But what he does say is, remember though, as you suffer and as you experience injustice and as you experience hardship and as you sit and you look and you say, why is it this way? Why are things so broken? That God has promised that he will come and make it all new. 
The way to fix the situation isn't to renovate it, it's to knock it down according to God. And that there will be a new heaven and a new earth and that we will have new bodies according to the Bible. And then it will be a different situation and the knowledge of that promise of God is intended to help us to endure the terribleness of this life. It will be okay. It will be good. But be patient. That Greek word, makrothumeo, that's being translated into English as, as patience, is literally translated to be long-suffering. To suffer for, willing to suffer for a long time. No wonder we hate patience so much. It's saying this isn't going to be a short little trial. Life is very difficult and painful. And we need to understand that. That patience is willing to suffer through a great deal of broken things. Nothing works the way that it should. You don't, I don't, our technology doesn't, nothing. It's broken. And it still has good things in it, just like we still have good within us. The, the thumbprint of God is still there, and you can marvel at a sunset or a mountain range. That there are things that are just beautiful and good and lovely and pleasant to be enjoyed in this life but they are the exception, they are not the rule. The default setting for human life is suffering. And that's hard, that's a hard truth. But God is not exempt from that suffering. In fact, he very much engages in it. In 2 Peter 3, 9 it says, the Lord is not slow about his promise. What Peter's engaging with here is, when we look out at the world, and especially in those moments when we're suffering, and when we see injustice, or when we're being treated unjustly, and we say, God, why don't you stop this? And he says, God is not slow about his prom promise, as some count slowness, but he is makathumeo. He is long-suffering toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That God suffers as he watches us suffer. He suffers because we're suffering. And he also suffers because of the suffering that we are causing each other. And his justice, his righteousness, his goodness looks at all the suffering that we're causing because of our evil desires and demands justice. We call out to God, where are you? And why don't you fix this? And his answer is, I'm coming. I feel the way you do, and even more so. But I'm patient with you. I don't want to come and judge the earth for its wickedness because it's filled with my children who I love, and I want them to come to know me. I want as many to come to know me as possibly can. I desire that all people would come to know me. And so I'm waiting to come and judge evil because I want there to be as much opportunity for you to find 
forgiveness. So God is patient and long-suffering. He endures us. We endure a fallen and broken world. And what James is saying is the way to do that is to remember he is coming. He is going to set things right. That it will not be like this forever. God is real. Justice is real. Good will prevail. Evil will be defeated. And all who love his coming, all who call out in his name, will enjoy eternity forever in a new kingdom where there is no pain, there is no suffering. But things are going to get worse before they get better. That has a special sting to it in 2020, doesn't it? It's going to get worse before it gets better. The Bible actually says that God himself will have to intervene in human affairs in order to stop all life from earth from being wiped out by us. Isn't that amazing? At a time where the greatest technological weapon in the world was steel, was a spear, God said there's going to come a time where you will literally destroy yourselves. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 21 and 22. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. It's going to get so bad, we're going to tear each other apart so much that God, the referee, is going to blow his whistle, say, time out. You're done. I will not let you destroy all of my creation. And he will intervene. God is going to overthrow our corrupt human system. The cosmos itself will be put to death. This is something that Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian ruler, over 3,000 years ago, God showed him in a dream about a statue. It says in Daniel chapter 2 that he had a dream and this statue had a golden head and a silver body and a bronze waist and iron legs and iron mixed with clay feet. And the prophet Daniel was brought in to interpret what the dream meant for the ruler. And he said, oh, great Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold is Babylon. It's you. It's your nation. But your nation will give way to Media Persia. Media Persia will give way to Greece. Greece will give way to Rome. And then there'll be a final kingdom. Some kind of mixed kingdom. We don't know what that is. We don't know if we're in the final kingdom or not. We'll know when the Lord comes back. That's the last one. It could be in our lifetime. It could be a thousand years from now. But it is going to stop. And the kingdom of God, he says, will come like a rock not cut with human hands. It will destroy the kingdoms of men. It will be all that's left and it will dominate the earth. That God himself will 
overtake the governments of men and establish a just rule. Now, if you think I'm making this up, let's read Daniel. This is Daniel giving the king the interpretation. It says, Daniel 2, 44, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and the kingdom will not be left for another people. And as much as you saw that a stone was cut of a mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. That all of human history is going to move along a timeline, but at the end of that timeline, God's going to put a stop to everything. We see it in Daniel. We just saw it in Matthew. We see it all throughout the Bible, this promise of God that the, the day of the Lord will come. And in Revelation, we get a description of what it will look like after God has established his rule on earth. And he says in Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things will pass away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write for these words are faithful and true. This is what James is talking about. He's saying when you suffer, when you are persecuted, when you are treated unjustly, when you are hurting and you're looking at the world around you and you're saying, why does this happen? Remember, the day of the Lord will come and he will set everything right. Now this is kind of a gloomy picture, right? I mean... Everything's going to get worse until it gets so bad that we actually are on the verge of annihilation of all life on earth. It's not something that you look at and you say, well, well, that's exciting. It's not really a time. Whenever that happens, I hope we're all long gone. It's not an exciting thing from the standpoint of knowing that there's going to be a lot more suffering. And some Christians look at this idea that the world is doomed and there's nothing that anyone can do about it. So why try to improve the world when it's bound for destruction? Why not just bunker up and try to protect ourselves and our loved ones and protect them from all the pain and suffering that we can and just wait it out until the Lord comes back or we die? Why lift a finger to fix a system that's unfixable? Should we just sit back and watch the world collapse? That's a legitimate question. In light of what God is saying here, it cannot be fixed, it will come to an end, it will be destroyed, why do any good for others? And that's where James comes in. He says, be patient knowing that the day of the Lord is coming. He says, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil being patient about it, 
Until he gets the early rain and the late rain, you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. He says, consider the farmer. The farmer faithfully labors in the belief that fruit will come. He knows that an entire day's work will not be enough to accomplish the outcome that he's looking for. A week's worth, a month's work will not be enough that day in and day out the farmer does what he knows needs to be done and the belief and the faith that it will produce the fruit that will provide for his family. And as we live in this world, we should consider the work of the farmer, the faithfulness and the patience, the markathemeo of the farmer who is long-suffering. It's true. We can't save the cosmos. It's beyond saving. It will be wiped out, obliterated completely. We cannot fix it. But we can help rescue its victims. We can be in the middle of all that muck and all that darkness and all that hatred and all that injustice. And we can be a light We can bring some good, some comfort, some love, some mercy in the middle of while people are tearing themselves apart, while they're destroying their families and their loved ones with their own avarice and greed. We can show them another way. Something good, something eternal. The world needs people willing to show a little love, a little kindness, a little generosity, a little patience. And no, we can't save it. But we can show people the way. The way to eternity. We can pursue justice. We can fight inequality. We can pursue peace and love and we can show people that it is not just about winning. It's about loving. And we can be used by God to change what the population of eternity will look like with a little kindness, a little love, a little care, and a lot of truth. We cannot save the world, but we can be used by God to help save our neighbors, our coworkers, and our family members from being destroyed with it. And as it gets worse, and as our love grows cold, and as the darkness swallows up, more and more of the human race, it only becomes that much more important that we stand up and we stand against it no matter what price we may pay. As things get worse, the temptation to bunker in and hide and keep our head down becomes greater, but the impact of what we can do with the backdrop of humanity's destruction means that we can be that much more powerful of a witness of God's love for his creation. 
James says in verse 10 through 11, he says, consider the farmer. He says, also as an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets. The prophets of old in the Old Testament who spoke in the name of the Lord, who count those blessed who endure. The prophets spoke. They were faithful. They spoke the truth of God even when no one would listen. What a horrible fate that would be to dedicate your life to sharing a truth that people hate. And it doesn't change any minds. But in the greatness of God and the goodness of God, it must be demonstrated that there is hope, that there is love, that people can choose another way, another path. We can't just bunker down because it's hard. The fact that we know how it ends makes it all the more important and makes it all the more, us all the more responsible to plead with people to change, to open their hearts to God and to one another. We know that it ends, and it ends badly. But there's so much we can do as it spirals out of control. Like the prophets, we can't measure our success only by how many people respond to the message that we share. Our success should be measured by the faithfulness, by our ability and our willingness to say yes to God when he calls, when he puts it on your heart to show love and compassion to your neighbor, when he puts it on your heart to share the gospel with a coworker, tell him yes. Even in the scariest of circumstances, when God calls, let our answer be yes. And that is a victory won in eternity. He says, have you heard of the endurance of Job? Remember, his audience knows the Old Testament. And they're like, oh yeah, I remember Job. Job suffered greatly. You heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcomes of the Lord's dealing, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. The life of Job is not one that you look at and automatically conclude the Lord is merciful and compassionate. It says that Job was the most righteous man on earth in his day, and God let him suffer like no one else has suffered other than Jesus Christ. His house fell down and killed his kids. His cattle died. He's sitting in an ash heap, once a wealthy man with a rich family and a rich life, who has done nothing to earn the ire of God. He's literally sitting in ashes. He's now covered in boils. And he's taking the little pieces of broken pots from his smashed belongings and scraping the pus off his skin from his boils. And his wife comes along and says, why don't you just curse God and die? Job 2, 9, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Even now you believe that God is good? Curse God and die. And as he's scraping the pus from his boils, 
He says, you speak as a foolish woman speaks. Shall I indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And all this Job didn't sin with his lips. He was blessed and he loved the Lord. And he was cursed and he loved the Lord. He accepted that suffering, long suffering, was a part of this life and that God didn't owe him a thing. And James says, consider that when you suffer and when you think about giving up. Job trusted God would come through in the end, and of course God did. God healed him and restored his wealth, and he had new children and a new family and lived a rich and full life after a period that was incredibly dark and difficult. God lifted him up and exalted him as he's known in the Bible as the most righteous man on earth. That'd be pretty cool in eternity. Hi, I'm Job. I was the most righteous man on earth during my time. You can check it out in my book. Wow. No matter how much Job suffered, he maintained his hope in God's goodness. He had lots of reasons to doubt the goodness of God as disaster after disaster after disaster happened in his life. He had every reason to say, that's it. God sucks. And he wouldn't do it. Wearsby, in his commentary on this, writes, For one thing, they were, they were in the will of God, yet they suffered. This audience is following God, and they're suffering because they're following God. They were preaching in the name of the Lord, yet they were persecuted. Satan tells the faithful Christian that his suffering is the result of sin or unfaithfulness, and yet his suffering might well be because of the faithfulness. Yes, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, says 2 Timothy 3.12. We must never think that obedience automatically produces ease and pleasure. Our Lord was obedient and it led to a cross. When you look at your life and you look at the suffering, don't conclude that God is against you. God was never against Job. He was never against Jesus. And he's not against you. But suffering is a part of what we deal with in this life. What's the takeaway here? The takeaway is don't give up. Whether it's COVID-19, whether it's racial injustice, whether it's the 2020 election, whether it's the economy, whether it's aliens come from space or meteors hit the earth or whatever it is that 2020 has planned next. God is good and he's coming. This winter is going to be rough, guys. The infections are on the rise. The political calamity is just crazy. No one knows what's going to happen in November. When is the election going to be over? What's going to happen to our retirement plans? It's a grim picture. It's rather bleak at the moment. But God is coming. Jesus is going to return 
And he's going to set it right. And if what happens in our lifetime, then we are bound to suffer. And if that happens a thousand years from now, we are bound to suffer. We just have our ability to shine our light during our time to show people the goodness of God and to be a source of love and compassion in the midst of the turmoil. What you can do is you can entrust yourself to God. If you don't know him, we know that you're suffering. We know that there's been a great deal of hardship and injustice in your life. And coming to know him won't stop that. It won't put an end to it because you'll still be a human being living on the planet Earth. But what it will do is open your eyes to a path and a way where God will come in and show you purpose and meaning and that you don't have to suffer alone. It will show you a path to community, to connection, to service, to love, to compassion. And the only requirement is, is that you admit that you agree that your way is not working, that you need Jesus Christ, and you want his forgiveness. If you will do that, then there is a big party waiting for all of us in heaven, and in eternity we will get to know each other without sin, without selfishness, without death, without fear, without pain, without mourning. And as it says, God himself will wipe away our tears. We very much want to share that with you. We want to share eternity with you. And we want to make a difference with the time that we have here. What you can do is you can share this truth with others. Right now, so many people are afraid, they're scared, they're depressed, they're exhausted, they're angry, they don't know what's going on, and they don't know if it's going to get better. They need hope, and the hope that they need is that Jesus Christ is coming home. He's coming back to set things right. What you can do is you can stand up for the truth, even though it's not popular, and it looks like it's going to be increasingly unpopular to speak forth the truth of God, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. That we are a fallen and broken people that are in need of a Savior and in need of forgiveness. That is a truth that people will increasingly hate, but the more they hate it, the more important it is that someone speak it. What you can do is take great encouragement and great hope that it will be set right. And we have eternity to look forward to, and we must remember that when we're in the middle of this tumult. We'll close with Psalm 25, 4 through 11. It says, show me the right path, O Lord. Point out the road for me to follow. Lead me by your truth and teach me, for you are the God who saves me. 
All day long I put my hope in you. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and unfailing love, which you will have shown from long ages past. And do not remember the rebellious sins of my youth. Remember me in the light of your unfailing love, for you are merciful, O Lord. The Lord is good and does, not, and does what is right. He shows the proper path to those who go astray. He leads the humble in doing right and teaches them his way. The Lord leads with unfailing love and faithfulness all who keep his commands and obey his demands. For the honor of your name, O Lord, forgive my many, many sins. That's what I got from James 5. I know that there's a lot of people in this room who have suffered and are suffering. We pray for their comfort, for their healing. We pray for their endurance. And we pray that they'll be used by you to help others. And we pray for the people in our lives that are suffering without understanding you. We pray that we could be a comfort and an encouragement to them. And we praise you, God, that you have promised you will return and set things right. We have many tears to wipe away, and we look forward to that day in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.